Hello, and welcome to the Amateur of Life and Death podcast. I'm Kevin Middleton. Each episode takes a look at a different aspect of the wonderful world of amateur theatre and features an amateur theatre maker talking about their theatrical life, theatrical loves and the times when they've died on stage. But this is a slightly different episode to usual. Each episode is normally around 45 minutes in length, but we record in excess of two hours of content per episode. I've edited every episode to date, and so for this episode, the last in our current series, I've pulled together some clips that we didn't have time for the first time around. I've also thrown in a few bloopers that made me laugh while I was editing. We'll start with a piece recorded for episode 7, The Play's The Thing. Luke Plimmer is talking to actor and director Fee Cotton. Luke has just invited Fee to tell us about her first love. I grew up in a working class family in semi-rural part of England in Wellington in Shropshire. A long way away from any big theatres. Um, but my parents were really interested in literature, the arts, music. And so I did... Um, my, my first experiences really with theatre were through ballet. Because I did a lot of ballet as a, as a little girl. And my dad used to take me to the Wolverhampton Grand Theatre to see any visiting ballet company that was coming. Danish, Royal Danish Ballet, I remember having this programme that I treasured beside my bed. And um, yeah, I can remember the joy of being out late at night in the dark in a city, you know, Wolverhampton, the big city. Um, so that was really exciting. And... Then I got involved with theatre at school, did lots of stuff at school, and but never really did anything major theatrically, um, because we just we didn't live near any big big theatres. But what I did start to do when I was probably about seven, my dad was a printer, and he used to print tickets and programmes for our local little theatre, which was called the Belfry Little Theatre in Wellington. It was tiny, it had maybe 50 seats. It was in an old school. And um, so I used to go along and watch these, these plays with my mum and dad. Um, and I was absolutely fascinated by the atmosphere that was created in this place. And it seemed so elegant and, you know, really young sophisticated and people who were in these plays used to come round to our house to collect the printing that my dad had done and I used to see these women who I'd seen on stage and think oh this big star's actually in my front room it was so exciting so um something that stands out in my mind as a real big love from that time was going to see the Merchant of Venice there and we took my granddad and my granddad was in his late 70s at the time and he had uh, played Shylock at school and I remember turning to look at him as we were watching this play and he was mouthing the words wow. and you know it was probably 50 years since he'd done it <laughs> and it was all coming back to him and I, I saw sorry I'm getting a bit emotional <laughs> but I saw something in his face, in his eyes, that he was being transported somewhere else. And it was just, yeah, a real standout memory for me. And 
anyway, then I, um, I had an amazing opportunity, kind of amazing thing happened in my life. I was literally working as a waitress in a cocktail bar when I met <laughs> my friend Jean-Marc Puisson, who is um, an Olivier Award-winning set designer now. Um, and at the time, he was a dancer with the Birmingham Royal Ballet. Um, and as I say, I was working in this bar and in walked these two incredibly gorgeous people. And they said, in with very heavily French accent, heavy French accent, um, do you have a menu, please? And because I'm a French speaker, I said, ah, oh, vous êtes français? Oui, bien sûr, je vous donne les cartes. And so we started chatting in French, and it turned out that Jean-Marc was um, a young dancer coming to take up a, a, um, a post with the Birmingham Royal Ballet, and he was looking for somewhere to live, and to cut a very long story short, we ended up sharing a house. So when the Birmingham Royal Ballet moved from Sadler's Wells to Birmingham in 1990, um, I was a really close friend of um, a member of the, of the company. And I used to get invited backstage. I used to go to general rehearsals. I used to go out partying with all these gorgeous ballet dancers. And, you know, I got to see a professional theatre, the, the Hippodrome, working as the home of the Birmingham Royal Ballet. Um, and that was, you know, just incredi incredibly, um, an, an incredible privilege to be able to see that and be involved with the, you know, as a friend of someone, to be in, see what was going on. I used to sit in the corner of dressing rooms sometimes before they went on. I was allowed to do that. Probably wouldn't be allowed now, but... Yeah, maybe we shouldn't publish that bit. <laughs> but um, so that was it, really. And, and that took my love of theatre to a different level. And that was about the same time that I joined the Crescent Theatre as well. So, yeah. What a fantastic story. Luke Plimmer there in conversation with Fee Cotton. Another piece that didn't make it into an episode is this wonderful conversation between our backstage pass holder, John O'Neill, and theatre director, music composer and TV producer and director at the BBC ITV and Channel 4, Rod Natkew. We join the conversation as Rod is telling John about his first love in theatre. It's always been there. I, I, right from my earliest days, I had five or six years when I was a child, when I was desperately, desperately keen to become a professional airline pilot. Um, but the eyesight was put the end to that. So I went back to my passion for theatricality. Um, and I have no idea really where it came from. The only clue is possibly my maternal grandfather, whom I never met. But he was apparently always going to the latest shows right. in the West End and he was apparently a very accomplished pianist who could come back having seen a new musical for the first time and play the tunes. Wow. It didn't trans transmit at all to my parents and I, I often thought I have absolutely no connection between my interest in the creative activities and my parents but what was interesting, and I found in later life, was uh, my father had the um, horror of going through being a prisoner of war with the Japanese. Wow. Uh, and he was an engineer, and he, he had gone to Malaya and was working in Malaya, and that's where he was taken prisoner. That's where I was born as well. Um, but interestingly enough, 
as an engineer, what he did in the prisoner of war camp, and he and I didn't realise the connection until very, very late on in his life, was he built a theatre for the other prisoners to use, including a revolving stage and front tabs which went up and down, and it was all out of bamboo and bits of wood that they found. And That's absolutely incredible. And you think, why did he do that? I mean, what, why that interest? Although it was an engineering challenge. So when was that, 1940? Oh, well, he was, he was taken prisoner when Singapore fell, which I think was 1942, I'm not sure. Right. And, um, and, and he, he was POW, prisoner of war, for a number of years. Three years, it? helped build the Burma Railway. Um, it, I mean, that's not the subject of this, this podcast, obviously, but it was horrendous. Uh, it yeah. was something he, yeah. he never wanted to talk about, really. Yeah. And well, he, I read a book, actually, The Narrow Road to the Deep North, yeah. which won the... And I realise we're deviating a little bit from theatre, but it doesn't matter. And that won the Booker Prize, and that details the Burma Railway and the horrific time that, uh, that the prisoners of war had. It, it was absolutely horrific. And the subject that we... The subject that my father and I could never really embark on was because I just knew it would devastate him was I'd come to the conclusion that what happened and what the Japanese did was appalling but their culture is that you don't surrender mm -hmm. and therefore if you do surrender you are the lowest of the low you have not honored your nation so the Japanese with that culture were dealing with all these people who surrendered so you can almost say well I can see their cultural response mm. treating you like that, but that's not a conversation you can have with someone who saw most of his friends killed yeah. in prison of war, yeah. in prison camps. Or malnourished. And, oh, terribly, terribly yeah. malnourished. Yeah. So um, th there was that strange connection. Um, and I suppose that my dad also made, I'll start again. So there was that first connection. And he also made a puppet theatre for me um, when I was a kid. So my parents and all their friends were subjected to these interminably long and dreadful puppet shows, which I put on. Um, I loved it. Uh, and that had, that had front tabs that went up and down and lights that worked and all the rest of it. So his engineering skills came into that. And then through school, um, I was in every stage of school I was involved in productions and outside school in things like youth clubs and church pantomimes and all the rest of it so it was there all the time and I think the the major major turning point for me which kind of said right this is the road you're on mm. was when I turned down a place to do English at Cambridge and instead chose to go to Bristol to do drama yeah and and did you have any pressure from your parents at that point they weren't chuffed. Yeah. I mean, my dad was from uh, a, a working class East London family. Mm. So the and fact... What you tend to find is working class lads are always steered away. Well, in, in, even in my time, really, when I was a young person, I was always tried to st steered away from it academically, from the arts. But you, you faced that mm. pressure a little oh, bit. But you oh, no, still... no, 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 no. <laughs> What he was not pleased about was that I was saying no to Cambridge. Right. So he was the son of a, a working class guy who'd never been to university. He left school at 14. Mm. And I'd got a place at Cambridge and I had to break the news to him that I was not going to take it. In fact, I, I, I had already been offered it and I was going to turn it down. And instead I was going to do go to Bristol and do a BA, drama, a BA in drama, which didn't impress him at all. But he did actually say, you know, look, it's your decision. Uh, it's your life, mm. so do it. And 
if that's what you want to. And it was the best decision I ever made. Such a touching story from Rob there, in conversation with John O'Neill. We ask a lot of our presenters on Amateur of Life and Death, and sometimes we need them to deliver some very specific information that has been meticulously researched. Sometimes that's easier said than done. This clip is one of my favourites. I was in the room when it was being recorded and I have left it totally unedited. If you listen closely, in one of the quiet bits, you can hear Liz, Laura and me laughing. Now, since this is our December episode, that can only mean one thing, the Christmas production. And in theatre or amateur theatre, a Christmas production means only one thing, children. <laughs> now, going to the theatre can be a wonderful experience for children and families. It helps family bonding and strengthens relationships. It creates shared laughter and memories. Let's again. Come Now, going to the theatre can be a wonderful experience for children and families. It helps family bonding and strengthens relationships. It creates shared memories and laughter. It helps improve emotional intelligence. It prompts conversations around tricky but important subjects. And it fires the imagination. When asked how to create a play for children, the theatre director, Konstantin Stanislavs... <laughs> I got this. When asked how to create a play for children, the theatre director, Konstantin Stanislavsky, famous repli... Okay, thank you. <laughs> when asked how to create a play for children, the theatre director, Konstantin Stanis... <laughs> this is ridiculous, I can do this. Not that I've got any other... I can do this, I can do this. When asked how to create a play for children, the theatre director, Konstantin Stanislavsky, famously replied, the same as for adults, only better. So what are the right ingredients for a piece of children's theatre? I'm going to try that one more time because I think I can do better. Now, when asked how to create a play for children, the theatre director, Konstantin Stanislavsky, This is going to be great for the blooper reel. <clears throat> when asked how to create a play for children, the theatre director, Konstantin Stanislavsky, famously replied, the same for us for adults, only better. Oh, I got that bit right and then I cocked it up at the end, didn't I? The same for adults, only better. Yeah. The same as for adults, only better. So what are the right ingredients for a piece of children's theatre? Poor Luke, struggling with the pronunciation of Stanislavsky there. At least we didn't ask him to talk about his wife, eh? Hey Google, who was Konstantin Stanislavsky's wife? Konstantin Stanislavsky was married to Maria Petrovna Lilina until 1938. Laura got the easier job of talking about Oscar Wilde, but proved that that could be just as problematic. Although friends visited him in France, Wilde, a once dutiful and <laughs> no. Although friends visited him in France, Wilde, a once joyful and exuberant exuberant i can say this word and then we ask luke to read a wild quote my wallpaper and i are fighting a duel to the death one of my wallpaper wallpaper my wallpaper and i are fighting a duel to the death one or the other of us has got to go who'd have thought reading could be so troublesome in this next clip we're listening to michael mcclernand talking to jeff Poole again about his first love shortly after joining Obi rep 
one of the directors was coming round with the news that the National Theatre Company was coming to Birmingham on tour. And uh, I, I didn't know where the National Theatre was. I'd never been to the theatre. I, I, I may have come to the Crescent once to see uh, Tennessee Williams' Orpheus Descending because I, I loved the Sidney Lumet film with Marlon Brando and Joanne Woodward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw that. And uh, when I came away, uh, I thought, well, as everyone does, I think, who goes to the theatre for the first time, how do they remember all the lines? Decades later, I still don't know. I do not know how they learn all those lines. Anyway, <clears throat> uh, the National Theatre. Yeah, uh, they said, uh, yes, they're, they're coming for a week. Uh, they're bringing Othello, uh, Uncle Vanya, and Hobson's Choice. And he said, uh, do, do you want a ticket? And I, I said, oh, yes, please, sounds good. And uh, he says, uh, which one? I says, oh, all of them. Um, and I've easy, always been easy. And uh, anyway, uh, yep, I took my fairly new girlfriend and along we went to see Laurence Olivier and Frank Finley and Michael Redgrave and all these superheroes of the theatre. Uh, and then, for a very brief moment, I thought, well, have I, why have I been bothering with cinema? all my life when I see this. Uh, anyway, what we did, we, we, we booked a season ticket at Birmingham Rep, uh, uh, which was in the old theatre in Station Street. This would be in 1964. And uh, it was a wonderful standard of acting, but obviously it wasn't quite the National Theatre. Uh, but I saw some great stuff there. I saw Michael Gambon, Black Up for Othello, and Brian Cox do Iago, many, many great productions. I was really looking forward to the new theatre opening, and uh, I was totally disenchanted within months. <clears throat> anyway, uh, that was my first love. It was a week with a national theatre. Week with a national theatre. What's been the love of your theatrical life? Wow. Well, I've been involved in over 130 productions, so it's devilishly difficult to pick one out. Uh, I'll rattle a few off, if I may. Of course. Um, I love doing the Joe Orton trilogy, which uh, I played Ed in Entertaining Mr. Sloan. I played Truscott in Loot and Rance in What the Butler Saw. I was particularly pleased with What the Butler Saw because it was a great cast, and uh, the chap who was playing the Dirty Doctor, I forgot what his name, name was, the character's name, but uh, he dropped out ten days before opening night. So he was left with this huge dilemma whether to shelve it or not. And uh, the chap who was directing it, <coughs> excuse me, who had a, he had a colleague who uh, was the guy who played Sloan opposite my head, Ian Hudson, I knew him quite well at that stage. And uh, he came in at the last moment. He directed it at the Crescent about 10 years previously. And he really put us all to shame. It was phenomenal. We worked all over the weekend, every night of those 10 nights. And it was one of the most successful productions I've been in. 
like most actors, I do a playing bottom. Uh, I had difficulty with the rehearsals because the lady who directed it wanted me to do Black Country, which is radically different to Birmingham. And uh, <laughs> because they elongate their vowels so much and almost uh, stick an extra syllable in, you know, it was havoc with the iambic pentameter. <laughs> so it was not a happy rehearsal period, but the run was great. I, I love the run. And uh, I won a BRMB Spotlight Award for it. So uh, I must have been doing something right. See you. Uh, and the other news about that production, that was 1982, and the other news was that the following year, the director contacted us all and asked us if we'd like to do it outdoors at Alverston Manor at Stratford. And that was the very first Crescent production to be performed outdoors. I don't know if this is relevant, but it was certainly relevant to me. In 1966, a new company opened in Birmingham called Independent Theatre. Uh, it was run by two Cambridge graduates, uh, Robert Atkins and Anthony Everett, who went on to be Minister for Culture and Arts. And they wanted to form a radical theatre that had nothing to do with the Rep, the Alex or the Hippodrome. And they proved it with the first season. It was uh, Jörg Buchner's Wojciech his Danton's death, um, Max Frisch's The Fire Raisers, and then tucked at the end of the season because they had to wait for the rel relinquishment of the Lord Chamberlain's censorship rules. It was Frank Vedekin's Spring Awakening. So I went along and I got the part of the showman in uh, Wojciech. And uh, not long after we started rehearsals, two weeks maybe, the guy playing Wojciech dropped out and uh, Anthony asked me if I'd take the role on. So it was by default yet again. And uh, oh, it was wonderful. Uh, I mean, he, he broke, broke all the rules. I mean, he even tried to get a horse on stage for the run, or a donkey on stage for the run. And there were many obstacles to that. The most important being that there were 13 steps for the poor beast to climb up. Well, anyway, at the dress rehearsal, he was, uh, he was totally freaked out, this poor creature was, so they had to shelve it. But that gave you some idea, not only of that production, that company, but of the wildly idealistic times of the 1960s. So there we are, some great clips that we didn't have time for first time around. Thank you for listening to the Amateur of Life and Death podcast. If you'd like to listen to more, make sure you subscribe at podcast.crescent-theatre.co.uk or via Spotify, Google or Apple Podcasts to get the next episode. You can find out more about the Crescent Theatre Birmingham and our upcoming productions, including I Love You, You're Perfect Now Change, Shakespeare in Love and The Snow Queen by visiting www.crescent-theatre.co.uk or by following us on social media.